Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. Wayne Allen about his new book, Thinking About Good and Evil, Jewish Views from Antiquity to Modernity, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2021. The most comprehensive book on the topic, Thinking About Good and Evil, traces the most salient Jewish ideas about why innocent people seem to suffer, why evil individuals seem to prosper, and God's role in such matters of injustice, from antiquity to the present. Rabbi Allen's engaging, accessible volume illuminates well-known, obscure, and novel Jewish solutions to the problem of good and evil. Rabbi Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew. Rabbi, I wonder if you could give us a taste of, of who you are and what you're all about. Sure. Um, I actually have my roots in two different tracks. One is the pulpit rabbinate and the other is the academic. Uh, I served as a pulpit rabbi for 35 years. And at the same time, I was working on my PhD in philosophy. Uh, Good and evil appears in both tracks. As a pulpit rabbi, I was often called upon to answer very challenging questions when members of the congregation and their family, particularly when they suffer loss or tragedy and they are groping for answers. And academically, my interest in philosophy and ethics uh, led me to ask some very profound questions about good and evil and, of course, with the existence of God. Uh, Going back to ancient times, there was always a dilemma. It's a very real dilemma, not artificial in the least, that if God, in the traditional Jewish sense, as we believe God to be, is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, how can evil possibly exist? So if evil is real and evil does exist, either God is not powerful enough to conquer it, or God is unwilling to do so. If God is unable to vanquish evil, then it speaks against God's omnipotence. He can't be all-powerful. And if God doesn't want to conquer evil, and therefore evil persists, then he can't be all-good. And thus, one of those ideals that we want to maintain about God must be sacrificed. So that's the philosophical question that comes up. Now, fortunately, uh, the Jewish Publication Society of America, the publisher of this volume, was very much interested in its essential Judaism series uh, to find uh, an author that would have the, let's say, experience as well as the skills to be able to address this question. They turned to me, and I was very pleased to produce this book as a result. Thank you very much for, for that answer. It gives us a good taste of, of, of who you are and, and how you came to write the book. But before we get into the, the content, the meat and potatoes of the book, I must ask, because in the introduction, you mentioned how Rabbi Dr. Neil Gilman of Blessed Memory was almost responsible for rejecting your rabbinical school application to JTS. I must ask, if, if you're willing to, what's the story behind this? Very interesting. Uh, first of all, I have much respect uh, for Neil Gilman, Alav HaShalom. Um, first of all, he was Canadian too. So uh, there is a connection there as well, although he came from Quebec and I'm in Toronto. Uh, every incoming 
applicant for the Jewish Theological Seminary of America is asked to write an essay, uh, an essay that has to do about their own uh, interest, their own uh, spiritual development and growth. And uh, I happen to uh, describe at some point um, my interest in uh, bridging some of the I, I would say the theological gaps between Judaism and other religions. And I use the word ecumenicalism and, uh, in my essay. Uh, and Dr. Gilman, uh, in at the beginning of the interview, he says, I don't know why we should accept anyone who is a university graduate who doesn't know that the correct word is ecumenism. So as far as I am concerned, uh, you don't belong here. Now, fortunately, the other interviewers on the committee shut that down and simply said, okay, that's a, that's a mistake. That is, uh, it, it, it is not necessarily, it, it's forgivable. So let's get to the, to the real issue here. So at, from that point on, and I did study with Professor Gilman while I was at the seminary, my approach was somewhat, um, how shall I put it? I was very wary, <laughs> uh, but we ended up on very good terms even though theologically speaking, uh, there was a significant gap in uh, his approach to mine, uh, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't mutual respect. That's great. It's great that he didn't reject you. So if we think about about your name, you've got this rabbi as well as doctor appended to your name. And you said before about your, your studies that that uh, ultimately led you to read to, to write the book. I'm, I'm curious, is with those two hats on, the rabbi hat and the, the the doctor hat, the PhD hat, are you are you thinking about this problem in different ways? Are you approaching it with different sources, or, or are you bringing these two disciplines, two degrees together? Let me first distinguish between the project of the book and the question that you just put to me personally. The intent of the book is to offer the readers a guided tour through the different approaches to the problem of good and evil um, throughout Jewish history. Um, The idea is not to foreclose any one path or to adopt any path at all, but rather to assist the reader in understanding the various paths that have been put forward. So I am more a docens than I am a critic. However, now from the perspective of uh, both per, both the pulpit rabbi as well as the academic. Pulpit rabbis are interested in practical solutions because they're dealing with, um, as they call it, I suppose, uh, they're, they're dealing with the, the, um, the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are often people in distress, people are hurting, and they're looking for some word or words that will allow them to process their pain and be able to move forward. And what congregational rabbis often uh, use are band-aids. They are some way to alleviate the pain 
And so the rabbi part of the process of looking at good and evil is to find a path that will help lessen the pain with which we are often afflicted. The academic is looking at things differently. The academic is trying to assess and evaluate and analyze the variety of answers and hold them up to scrutiny. We're trying to see which ones cohere, which ones make sense, um, what are the implications, what are the gaps, um, and to draw some kind of a conclusion that is based on that analysis. So two different processes are, are going on. When I was a congregational rabbi, um, I, am, uh, I have not been a congregational rabbi for the last 10 years. I've switched to Jewish education. Uh, I was listening to uh, an interview of uh, James Patterson this past week, uh, and I'm going to use a term that I borrow from him. Um, I'm 10 years clean from being a pulpit rabbi. So I'm, I'm no longer in that field. But having spent 35 years dealing with funerals and grieving and illness uh, and all sorts of disappointments from economic loss and job loss, unemployment, business failures, and not to mention personal pains, failed marriages, and the like, um, I know that people are always looking for the answer. Rabbi, tell me, what wisdom does Judaism have to offer that will allow me to move forward? Uh, give me that answer. They're looking for that. Of course, we can't inoculate people from all kinds of pains in their lives, but they're looking for some kind of relief. Um, and in the book, you will find that there have been attempts to try to uh, provide that whether they're successful or not, I'll leave to the reader's judgment. But aside from that, when we move into the other area and the area is uh, looking analytically at uh, some of the solutions that have been put forward, it's an entirely uh, different process. And I'm very much aware of the two. Thank you. In the book itself, there are tens of different responses which you you bring to to answer this this very difficult question many many answers and and a, a lot of variant and 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 variant answers to the problem having said that of course there's always more that one could bring there's always more material one can bring to the table so what was your your process how exactly did you go about deciding this should should be in another thing say maybe I should leave this out of the book um, in the introduction when I talk about what the book is and what the book isn't, uh, I mention the fact that I wanted answers that were representative, but not redundant. So I was looking for as much novelty as I was for authoritativeness. Um, I, were looking, I was looking for answers that are not the only such answers in our tradition, but frame it in such a way that will be useful and um, I think clear to the readers. Um, so I was also looking for a wide range of answers. Um, and I wanted the readers to be able to see 
the variation of answers and also the breadth of different answers that we have in our tradition. Uh, And all of this leads to a very important truth. Um, Every academic learns at some point that when there are multiple answers to a particular question, it almost always leads to the conclusion that no one answer must be the authoritative one. Because if there is one solution that by consensus everyone would see as the correct one, there's no need to go any further. You don't have to offer 35 answers if there's only one good one. So what this tells readers right away is that this is an open question. Um, The nature of good and evil is not something that is settled. Uh, It still remains a, uh, a persistent question in Judaism. And the best that we can do is to look at the whole wide range of answers and try to assess which one works best. I thought you were going to ask me, Matthew, a different question because I'm often asked that when when interviewers will ask me, so which, in your opinion, is the best one? (laughs) Uh, Which one do you like or which one is your favorite? And I, I resist answering that because every time I go back and look at the sources again, uh, there will come a point where it's the last one that I look at and I say, yes, that's the one, until I look at another one and I say, no, that's the one. Each one has within it um, a legitimate claim to the title of the best answer. Uh, I know I was having this interview today, so earlier I went back and just took a perusal uh, through the sources and uh, I just happened to land on uh, one of the uh, more mystical approaches. And as I'm rereading what I wrote and I'm saying, oh, yes, yeah, I remember this clearly now. I'm going back to the sources. Uh, That's the one. Yeah, that one makes the most sense. Luzado, yes, he's got it. And then uh, I recall some of the... um, Let's, let's call it the weaknesses in his argument. And I say, oh, yeah, I can't do that. Um, so every time I go through it, I, I see that there is a re- any reasonable person can find um, some part of an answer, uh, maybe not a complete and compelling one, but they'll find a framework of an answer that they can relate to. So, uh, yeah, I think all of the answers that are here that are included in the book are worth um, worth the time to look into and consider. So that, that was going to be another question. So you've oh, taken good. that question off of the table. <laughs> right. Yeah. So getting back a bit to the, the process of inclusion. Um, so just to follow up on that. So. Part of the book and, and part of the, the series is, is about Jewish responses to this particular question. So the question, of course, that could follow is, well, what makes an answer particularly Jewish? Yes, and uh, I, I deal with that uh, in the introduction as well. Um, 
the question that's generally asked is, who is a Jewish philosopher? Is it someone who is Jewish and writes philosophy? Well, there are many Jews uh, who are philosophers, and we really wouldn't call them Jewish philosophers uh, because their their heads were in the the more arcane aspects of philosophy, or they weren't practicing Jews, so we dismiss them. And sometimes there are writers who write about topics that are clearly Jewish topics, but are not Jewish. So are they a Jewish philosopher? So we have the same problem uh, on what makes for a Jewish response. I think that Christians can read this book and find in it uh, reflections and echoes of many Christian writers, and that shouldn't be surprising uh, because there are noted Christian theologians who have grappled with the same problem uh, from Aquinas uh, in the medieval period um, to some of the uh, modern authors that are very well known, like Paul Tillich and others uh, in contemporary Protestant literature, and even, I would say, uh, in the various uh, Catholic uh, um, approaches to good and evil. So they will find um, some significant uh, assistance to them. I would say that, however, because Judaism deals exclusively with a monotheistic response, any religion that would propose that there are multiple gods, uh, at least two, two or more, and one is responsible for evil, that would not be a Jewish response. That would be an easy response, because then you could say that, well, the good God we believe in is pure, and uh, he is unencumbered by any of these questions about why is there evil in the world, because that God's not responsible for it, it's only the evil one. But as Jews, we can't do that. So that would be an exclusion. However, that doesn't mean that those who are, um, uh, who are not monotheistic wouldn't find value in reading of some of the approaches, because uh, there might be value in that too. So I'm sure that there are Christians who would be interested in reading this book. In fact, I am so positive because uh, uh, I am told that my book has been rated as one of the top five uh, books for uh, pastors by the an Association of American Pastors as a research tool. So I know that the there is a Christian audience out there that is looking at this as well. What makes something Jewish in terms of, uh, as far as I am concerned, in terms that are, are included in the book, is that the author would have to have been Jewish and is dealing with a Jewish problem that is good and evil. That does not mean to say that every person... Uh, every philosopher or thinker that is included in the book was an observant, synagogue-attending, dietary law-observing Jew. Uh, certainly not the case. Um, but they are Jewish, and they're concerned with the Jewish issue, and therefore they were included. So go- going back to the beginning, uh, beginning of time, beginning of, of your addressing of this question, many traditionalists would argue that the Bible presents 
God's answer to this age-old question. From your perspective, what is the Bible's approach? Is it speaking in one voice to answer this question? Uh, The answer is most assuredly not. Uh, And in the chapter of biblical approaches, you will see that we have various approaches, um, some of which assume that there is an understanding of good and evil that uh, that even God must abide by, which is phenomenally mind-bending. So the traditionalist says, it's very simple. You follow the Torah. The Torah tells us what's good, and the Torah tells us what's evil. You do what's good, you avoid what's evil, and that's the end of the matter. But it's not that simple. Um, And just to mention one particular verse in passing, uh, when Abraham is in dialogue with God, and God informs Abraham of the imminent destruction of the city of Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah, as most people will know the names. Um, when Abraham hears that, he is morally offended. Now, remember, Abraham has not received the Torah, so he doesn't know any definition of good and evil other than through his own experience and his conversations with God previously. And he says to God, Uh, How is it possible that the judge of the entire world is going to act unjustly? How can you destroy an entire city when there may be innocent people who are living there? And God says, you know, you're right. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here. But Abraham invokes a moral system that is independent of the Torah, to which even God must be held accountable. And that's an extraordinary perspective. So anyone who facilely would make the claim that uh, the traditional view is everything that God commands must be good and everything that God forbids must be evil, uh, now we can wash our hands with the entire question. That's all you need to do of course, would have to confront this, as well as the fact that we understand that it would lead people to defend particular laws that seem in our day to be indefensible. Um, There is a law in the Torah to thoroughly destroy the Amalekites, uh, to destroy all the seven Canaanite nations, They have to be thoroughly obliterated. Today, we use the term genocide uh, when we apply that. And that would mean that if you want to argue that good and evil are determined solely by the commandments in the Torah, you would have to then justify genocide on the basis that if God demands it, then it must be good. I think many people today would find that a very tough case to defend. Going from the biblical view or views and moving to the rabbinic views uh, that, that you that you look at, to what degree did, did the rabbinic positions develop from their reading of the Bible? And, and how exactly did they change, add to, interpret it in, in different ways? Well, I think the rabbis, as much as I've just described, found that the Bible itself was inadequate. And that's why they imagined, I don't want to say invented, but I would say that the rabbis um, imagined 
alternative answers. And some of them are, of course, quite foreign to us today, uh, ranging from demonology, that there are certain demonic forces that are out there that can uh, undermine the good, to their, the effects of constellations, a sort of astrological influence, and uh, certain people are born under certain stars or constellations, which has an impact and influence on people's behavior. Um, these were novel. They don't appear anywhere else in the Torah or anywhere in the Tanakh, uh, but the rabbis have um, brought them in. Um, so in the book, in the chapter on, uh, on the rabbinic approaches to good and evil, I've identified 13 different attitudes that the rabbis have in terms of addressing the problem of good and evil. Uh, and that meant that the rabbis were um, engaged in trying to engineer uh, approaches that they thought would satisfy those who were dissatisfied in just reading the biblical accounts. Now, that is not to say that these 13 are in contradiction of what's in the Torah. I mean, God forbid, no one who who has respect for our tradition would ever say something like uh, the rabbis were, uh, were overturning what's in the Torah, but they supplement the, the Torah with other possibilities. That suggests to me that the creativity of the rabbis was commensurate with their inability to properly explain the problem based on the answers that they had inherited. If we think about these 13 approaches that, that the rabbis had that you outlined, what what was your research pro, your, your research process to 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 find first to find the sources because the rabbinic corpus of course is no small corpus, and then to to put them into specific buckets was was there an initial set of buckets that you needed to add to reduce were the sources coming first and then moving on to the different approaches how did how did you go about this? Well, like any good uh, researcher, there are things that you already by your own experience. Uh, can identify. And then, of course, you rely on others. Uh, I'm not the only uh, writer in a field that deals with problems of good and evil. There are many articles that are out there. And uh, I rely on my predecessors and on others to help point me in the right direction. Um, The hardest decision, I believe, was not finding these other um, uh, I'll, I'll call them uh, road signs for how I could uh, locate these different views, but asking myself the question, is it exhaustive? Have I found them all? Uh, there's always a worry. You know, when I say there are 13 different rabbinic views, is there a 14th? Uh, and there might be. Um, so one of the things that I discover is in my continued studies I come across related ideas. And then I ask myself a question, is this a 14th that I had omitted or could it be subsumed under one of the 13 I've already identified? 
So the, the process is uh, one that I think that any researcher will encounter. Uh, you have a pretty good sense initially of what some of these things might be. Uh, and then you explore further and add to your inventory. Sticking with the rabbinic approaches until we move on to some of the other sections, you include in this section ideas and thoughts from the Dead Sea Scrolls as well as Philo. So I wonder if we could discuss both their their views as, as well as understand why we include it in the rabbinic section as opposed to a new section, a different section. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the second question first. They were contemporaneous with, uh, with the sources, with the rabbinic sources, so that's where we have to put them. Um, it's just the, the timing works out. They're not separate. And they do reflect some of the thinking that we find in rabbinic literature. Um, what most people will not particularly understand from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and from uh, some of the literature of that period is that uh, some of these statements are, um, and some of the thinking there, is quite foreign to us. We would mostly consider these to be sources that would, would be outside of Judaism, that they would be Gnostic sources or they would be um, Christian sources, but yet they were, as best we can tell, these were Jews who had these views too. Um, Philo is a very interesting character because there's still an academic debate today as to whether Philo actually knew any Hebrew. Um, I'm not going to try to resolve that debate. That's not my area, and I'm not going to in, in any way make a decision on it. However, it does tell us something that was very important. Philo um, was cosmopolitan. Um, he lived in the Greek-speaking world, and he tried to apologize uh, for Judaism by making the ideas of Judaism appealing to a Hellenistic audience. So he did, he did the Jewish people a service, um, namely that he tried to rationalize Judaism so that it would not be looked at as a sort of poor cousin of, of the Hellenistic philosophy of his day. And I think he did an excellent job uh, in putting forward these ideas. At the same time, he is a bridge to Hellenistic thinking because uh, he, for a Jewish audience, um, has invested himself in trying to, well, in the process of apologizing for Judaism, he's telling us what Greeks were thinking too, and uh, how the the, the, the thinking of the rabbis was very much influenced uh, by the culture that surrounded them. So these two are very important components. Now, some would argue that um, what we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls is not normative Judaism and that Philo doesn't represent normative Judaism. Well and good, I'm not going to defend or argue whether it is normative Judaism or not, but it is a Jewish view and a Jewish perspective that has to be accounted for. So that's why they're included in the book. And I think uh, readers 
uh, will find it most interesting to see uh, what we find in some of these sources. The rabbis were not only waxing lyrical about philosophical ideas, about questions such as what, what is the answer to the, to the issue of good and evil, but of course they're also legal decisors, thinking about halakha, thinking about Jewish law, and, and what the, the final outcome should be about Jewish law. So from your research, was there what was the interface between these two? Were, were they totally separate? Were the rabbis on one side thinking about philosophy and then on the other side thinking about law? Or was there, in fact, an interface, interaction between these two sides of the rabbinical enterprise? As a, as a teacher, I would say that in many instances, we find embedded in the laws a philosophical underpinning, values that reflect rabbinic thinking, and so the argument could be made, and I often do make this to my students, that you can't ignore law as a source of philosophy, because you will find in it um, these ideas uh, not always articulated so obviously, but they are certainly there. Having said that, I will point out that Maimonides undertook, as as probably the premier Jewish philosopher, uh, when people think of Jewish philosophy, the name Maimonides will often come to mind first, and for good reason. Uh, Maimonides was involved in in actually two uh, different tasks. The first was to try to codify Jewish law in a way that would make it relatively easy for Jews to be able to um, uh, look up and discover what it is that they need to do in order to practice Judaism correctly. Um, And he achieved that by simplifying Talmudic arguments, in fact, in most cases, eliminating them, Um, and then reorganizing the contents of the Talmud without all the argumentation into thematically related sections. And good for him. So now you could look at, at the same time, he addresses the questions put to him by one of his students by writing a letter to answer the question, I don't know how I can believe in traditional Judaism knowing that now we are living in the modern period, meaning the 12th century, and uh, we see we have all of these modern ideas and new approaches that call some of Judaism into question. So Maimonides writes a letter back. The letter is over 400 pages long, and it becomes the guide of the perplex, which becomes his masterpiece of philosophy. And here he's not interested at all in what the law is. It is a separate task that he had set out for himself to just explore problems such as anthropomorphism in the Torah, but most importantly, particularly in Book 3, when he takes on his approach to what should Jews believe uh, and how they ought to believe it. Um, and here taking on many of the topics that 
are going to be addressed either directly or indirectly in my book. So Maimonides saw this as two separate approaches. It causes um, later thinkers, scholars, and uh, researchers some problems because what he says in one instance uh, dealing with things philosophically is not always what he has to say in his legal code. Um, consistency becomes an issue, um, and that leads us to question, you know, which one was it? But one of the easiest answers I have come to accept is that Maimonides was engaged in two separate functions. So it shouldn't shock us or surprise us that when he's dealing with issues philosophically, he will give a particular response, and when he's dealing things with legal uh, that have legal implications, it will be the other. Most of the other um, medieval philosophers who deal with the problem of good and evil um, were very much doing the same thing. There was a legal side, but there was also a philosophical side. Uh, very few were just concerned with um, the philosophy alone. Um, I would say the one who is perhaps closest to that would be Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, also known as Gersonides, who had very little to say when it came to legal matters and much more to say philosophically speaking. But um, the two can be related when it comes to matters of good and evil, I think that they were unrelated. Thank you for making the segue to the medieval period and the medieval approaches. I'd, I'd love to to chat about the, this period and, and think about, as we discussed before, the, the issue or the idea of, of continuity. So, so we said, God forbid for the rabbis to disagree with, with the biblical approach, because of course that's that's their key source text and that's that's their, their Bible, the scripture that, that they relied upon. If we're looking at the medieval period, did they have a similar approach to, to the rabbinic period, the rabbinic material, or were they thinking about these things anew based on, on the Bible and based on the philosophy they had at the time? Yeah, I think it's more the latter than the former. Um, it is true that there is, of course, some reliance on uh, the earlier rabbinic views of good and evil. But the medievalists had an entirely different concern. They were in a life struggle with other religious ideas of the time. Uh, We talk about today being a marketplace of ideas. Uh, People forget that in the Middle Ages, there was an intense competition between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, One of the most important sources that highlights this is uh, Rabbi um, uh, Yehuda Halevi's Kuzari, because it is in the Kuzari that you find, you know, it's all a setup. Uh, We know that he's writing primarily for a Jewish audience, but he has to show that Judaism belongs in this uh, pantheon of ideas of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and one that he calls a scientific view. Um, And each of them are offering a different approach to the world, uh, and Judaism has to hold its own. So the medieval rabbis were very much interested in trying to defend against the claims made by 
um, Christianity in Christian countries and Islam in Muslim countries where Jews would be living and familiar with these ideas. So they are going less to the rabbinic answers. It's less continuity and more in terms of uh, what we would call um, the interplay between the competing religious ideas of the day. So, of course, the answers are going to be quite different. What they were trying to highlight is that the answers that Christians and Muslims give are less satisfactory than the ones that uh, we Jews will have, and that was their approach. So it was different than trying to look at the progression from Bible to medieval um, uh, to rabbinic and then to medieval, and and more instead of uh, what we would call it uh, in in the realm of um, religious disputation. To go back to to research approaches, um, so of course your research was, was across all the different areas, but just to, to pause now and think about your, your research of the topic. I'm curious if, if there were any specific thinkers or views that you came across which you were surprised by, which you hadn't come across before, and through your research you, you had discovered and I thought it was not, not something you thought you'd come across before. Interesting question. Um, I don't think that there was ever a thinker that I encountered in putting all of this together uh, where I said, oh, I knew all of this already, uh, that there wasn't some surprise or some nuance that I hadn't considered. And that's why uh, I, I think that writing this book was uh, not only a benefit to uh, the reading audience, I hope it's a benefit to them, but to me as well, uh, because it compelled me to look back and look again Uh, I often tell my students that the word respect means to look a second time. Uh, And if you have respect for the sources, you want to take a look at them over again and make sure that you fully understand it, but also look for things that you haven't discovered before. So this was a journey of discovery for for me as well. Um, I don't think there was one particular thinker. Although I would say that Samuel Alexander is a name that is less known by uh, most Jews. And at one point, he was considered to be a preeminent Jewish philosopher in the early 20th century. Hardly anyone knows him today. Um, In my philosophical studies, I had come across him, uh, and I thought him to be a very important addition to this book. Um, And that's why I include him, because he is dealing with what most people consider to be the raw philosophical uh, kind of approaches, which is uh, all dealing with what people would consider to be airy-fairy ideas, um, not very pragmatic or practical, but in in this particular subject area, a very important, a, a, a piece about God is becoming Um, that he believes that God exists, but God doesn't fully exist. Uh, God is in the process of becoming, which is a very intriguing idea. Therefore, you can't hold God accountable for all the evil in the world because we don't have a fully formed God as yet. Now, I know I'm I'm abbreviating, 
uh, and then shortening for the audience, that may sound very, very odd, but I recommend people to come and take a look at it. I think that of all of the the, the thinkers and characters in the book, uh, this perhaps is uh, probably the most intriguing to me still. Thank you for that. It's, it's very interesting. If we want to move to another period and another group of thinkers so we can get a taste of some other ideas, one of the other approaches is the Kabbalistic approach. And there you survey five different Kabbalistic approaches. If we look at, at, at these different approaches, are, are these ones which, which remain? So if you think about the, the, mod, the, the standard or not standard, perhaps the, the common conception, if there is one today, are these things which are colored by the Kabbalistic approach, are colored by op- opposition and antagonism for these approaches, or perhaps somewhere in between? Well, I, I'm, I, to be sure, there's still Kabbalists around today. I don't want to diminish them. Um, is this any part of uh, mainstream Judaism, or people like to call it normative Judaism? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how anyone could know. Uh, I know that uh, if we're going to think of Kabbalah as being part of of the of Hasidic. Uh, Judaism, then of course there's still a residue of that and something even more uh, considerable there. Um, but rather than get into a discussion of it, I think that uh, of where Kabbalah stands today vis-a-vis the uh, plurality of Jews in, in, in the world, I think it has something, something that is... Um, important to say because for the Kabbalists, evil was embedded in the very creation of the universe. And it is a thought process here that is very important. So if we think that evil is built in, it is not a violation of the world order, but it is a part of the world order, gives us a very different perspective on what we're dealing with. It's not like a splinter that can be removed. Uh, it, is, it is the finger itself. You can't remove it. Uh, it is very much still part of the body that we call the universe. Um, is that helpful or not? I can't say. There are some people who look at it that way. Um, but the... The mystical part of this idea that um, evil must exist, I'll just take a quick look at with you of Lurianic Kabbalah, that in order for the world to exist, God had to withdraw because the whole world is filled with God's glory, so there's no place for anything if the world was going to come into an exist it into existence. That means that God must withdraw. If he withdraws, that means that there's a part of the totality of the universe that is godless. Emanations from the divine try to fill that gap, but emanations are unstable and can't be held true. So therefore, the evil is in effect the result. But through the performance of mitzvot, here we have the mystical connection of mitzvot with philosophy, that we can repair the world and bring in a process of redemption. I love this idea. 
that human beings are partners with God in perfecting the world. And that if you see evil in the world today, yes, it is the inevitable part, the structure of the universe, but it's something that can be, at least in one mystical thinker, overcome. Um, And I think that's a challenge to every human being. So rather than just bewail the fact that we are uh, living in such a terrible world where awful things happen, um, that we have an opportunity um, to, to change that. So I think that's highly motivational. So if there's something that readers could capture from reading the chapter on uh, the Kabbalistic or mystical approaches to Judaism is that uh, human beings can make a difference. Yes, there's evil in the world, but we don't throw up our hands and disgust and surrender. But instead, we get down to the, uh, the business of perfecting the world and eradicating the evil. And that becomes a human responsibility rather than a weakness of God. I think that that's a that that is a, a very important statement. I think that it would it would be remiss of me. It would be inappropriate to to not discuss the the issue the um, the aspect of the Holocaust and its impact and implications for this very question. And it's a large part of your book, and I want to make sure that that we give it time. I don't think we can give it en- enough time, unfortunately. But what was the approach? or certainly approaches to the issue of the Holocaust? Were, were, were some thinkers using it as just any any old uh, type of evil, or was it a special type of evil? How, how was this challenge dealt with by the thinkers that you serve it? Yeah, um, of course. This is, this is uh, I can identify this as the wound that will never heal. Um, it is the single most challenging problem to belief in God. Um, I mentioned that Rebecca Goldstein, a noted contemporary Jewish philosopher, um, cites the death of children in the Holocaust as the reason why she gave up her um, orthodox background and upbringing uh, and given up on the idea of God is because she has no good answer for it. Uh, I respect that. Um, and I, uh, I would say that there are many people who think in the same way. Uh, my book identifies three different categories of responders to the problem of evil, the unique problem of the Holocaust. And for those who are unconvinced that the Holocaust is a unique problem, I recommend that you read the book where I discuss what makes it so. I don't want to take the time to go into that now. I'd rather deal with the ideas that come out of it. Is there some people find that the traditional ideas that there is no sin, uh, there is no death without sin, um, and that means all we have to do is identify the sins committed by the victims of the Shoah, and there you have it. That's the answer. And there have been those who have tried to do that. Um, I don't find that particularly convincing because you would have to account for a million and a half children who are not responsible at all for their actions. So they should not have become victims as well as the saintly uh, worthy people who also died, uh, who 
by any measurement would not be considered to be sinners. So I find that hard to maintain. Of course, those who say that, yes, there is a rabbinic view that says that the leaders of every generation are held accountable for the sins of those in their generation. So if there were sinners, then it wasn't necessarily the saintly people, but the tzaddikim died anyway because there were others who were not. I understand that, but I still feel that that answer is inadequate. Um, There are those who... um, want to radically revise uh, Judaism as a result of the Holocaust, the revisionists who say, yes, so we have to reconstitute Judaism now without a belief in an all-powerful or an all-good God, uh, because the problem of the Shoah is just so intractable that it leaves us no choice. And then there are others who simply deflect. These are those who want to argue that um, it's not a question of where was God, but a question of where was humanity. Uh, We shouldn't offload the problem of the Shoah onto God's shoulders because God didn't put any Jew or any victim into a gas chamber or crematorium. That was done by Hitler and his willing executioners. So to condemn God for actions that were not his responsibility or God's responsibility um, is is certainly wrong. And, of course, we have people who line up in each of these categories. And I would say that having read them and researched them, and I would welcome readers to do the same thing, I would challenge readers to see if any of them will resolve the problem adequately. Um, And again, my task is only to serve as the docents and bring people on the guided tour. Uh, I can point out some of the possibilities where they sound good um, and even where they fall short but I will let readers draw their own conclusion, I think it's important to note is that, again, Judaism is not univocal here. Even when it comes to the issue of the Shoah, we have a three-headed response. Uh, um, And I will leave it to readers to see what the implications of that might be for them. Thinking about, about you, about yourself, from before writing the book and after writing the book. So I know you said you've been 10 years clean as a congregational rabbi, but I'm assuming that people still here and there come to you with with their rabbinic questions. Is there a way that you answer this question differently after writing the book from before writing the book, or do you have the same answer you give people? Well, um, I I don't have that many people actually coming to me now with – these kinds of uh, personal questions dealing with tragedies and or disappointments in their life. And I can say in the way that um, I'm grateful that I don't have to be on the front lines dealing with it. But on the other hand, I miss it because when you can offer some words of comfort that will help people along, there's a great deal of satisfaction that one can derive from it. So the way this book has changed me in having researched it and written it and now talking about it, is that I think I've become much more open-minded 
when it comes to um, issues uh, in Judaism, particularly philosophical ones, theological ones. Um, when I was younger, and I have to say that that often comes with the exuberance of youth, um, I was certain. Uh, I was I, I was certain about everything. Um, I was certain that there was uh, one way and, uh, well, actually two ways, uh, the right way <laughs> and the wrong way. And now I see that that's not necessarily a good way of looking at it, uh, that there are alternate routes. And being aware of the alternate routes, uh, I think, gives me a better listening ear. And I think that that's something that maybe everyone can take away. Uh, when we see that um, people should not be so obstinately certain that what they know or what they think to be true is actually so, and more amenable to thinking that, well, maybe there are alternatives, will make us all, I think, more likely to be tolerant and accepting of each other and realizing that it's, uh, Judaism is more than just uh, one particular way. Uh, that's why I'm often troubled. And by the way, I, I, I daven in an Orthodox synagogue. I'm an ordained conservative rabbi. I daven in an Orthodox synagogue. But I don't consider myself Orthodox. I don't know whether I'm conservative anymore. Uh, I, you know, but that's a different story, and that's not for this book, maybe at some point in the future. Um, but what, what I will say is that the word Orthodox is misused, Um there is no orthodoxy, meaning a right opinion, when it comes to matters of good and evil. Uh, and that should be a takeaway that I would like my readers to have. Um, there is no orthodox view on good and evil, because were that the case, then one would have to say that Maimonides is a reformed Jew. Uh, and you can take that all the way through in history as well. So uh, maybe the best takeaway and the outcome is to be more open-minded and tolerant of differing views because you don't know which one is going to be the right one if there is such a thing at all. That's a really great place to end it. I've taken up a lot of your time. On the New Books Network, we have a traditional closing question I'd love to ask you. What are you working on next? My next book is Law and Custom in Judaism, and I am exploring phenomenologically what the connection is between what people customarily do and uh, what a real custom might be. When I say a real custom, we use the word very broadly. And I am exploring how that term is used, both philosophically, mostly phenomenologically, and uh, in Judaism as well. So this has been a uh, 
has been in the hopper for a long time. Now I'm coming back to it and working on it further. So, uh, yeah, I hope to have it out in another year or so. Good stuff. I look forward to speaking to you when, when it's set. Thank I'd you be, so much. I'm, okay. Thank you so much, Matthew, for having me. We've been talking to Rabbi Dr. Wayne Allen, author of Thinking About Good and Evil, Jewish Views from Antiquity to Modernity, published in 2021 by Jewish Publication Society. Happy reading, my friends.